this probably won't come as much of a surprise to any of you, but I like cake. <laughs> it doesn't really matter what the occasion is or even what kind of cake or what flavor of frosting we're talking about. If there's cake to be had, I'm probably going to have some. That being the case, I've eaten many different kinds of cake over the years, and I've liked just about all of them, clearly. But there's one type of cake I've never had an opportunity to enjoy, and that's a hint for the next potluck. I'm talking about illusion cake. Do you guys know what those are? They're, they're cakes that are made to look like things that aren't cakes, usually by means of a ludicrous amount of fondant. I don't just mean the cakes are baked in a, a cake pan that's shaped like a race car or a unicorn or Mickey Mouse, like our moms made for us for our birthdays when we were kids. I'm talking about a cake that is cleverly and convincingly disguised as an everyday object, like a potted plant or a purse or a bag of Doritos even. Though I've never gotten to try a piece of illusion cake, I enjoy watching YouTube videos of people slicing into illusion cakes to reveal the actual cake content inside of the fondant sculptures. A lot of them look really interesting and delicious to me. There are some, though, that I can't imagine eating because they're made to look like gross things, like an old boot or a used ashtray or a dirty kitty litter box or a dead fish. The bakers have applied so much artistry to the decoration of these, these creations that the thought of eating them loses all appeal for me. And that's saying something. But imagine if those cakes were inside out. Imagine that someone brings you a delicious looking three-tiered cake in your favorite flavor, and you slice into it only to discover that inside of the cake there's a, a used ashtray or a dead fish or a smelly old boot. Regardless of how good that cake looks on the outside, the inside renders it absolutely undesirable. Paul is going to argue in our text this morning that this is exactly the state of the Jews of his day. They alone had been entrusted with the law, and they had the sign of circumcision to confirm that they were in covenant with God. On the outside, they were as right as rain. They believed they had everything going for them spiritually because of these outward trappings of their religion. But inwardly, their hearts remained hard and unchanged. And so they were going to come under God's judgment, just like the unbelieving Gentiles. And there are warnings for us here even today, though we're not old covenant Jews. As men and women and children, under the new covenant, we can still fall into this kind of fallacious thinking and living. Now that you're all hungry for cake, let's read Romans 2, 17 through 29. Paul says, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law 
will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. As we've seen over the past several weeks, David begins his letter to the Romans by making a very thorough case that no one is righteous before God. In chapter 1, he kept things very general, speaking about men sort of generically, and not really specifying a particular group or race or religion. This would have allowed the Jews to assume he was talking about the Gentiles, which probably would have been a nice stroke of the Jews' ego. They would have readily agreed with Paul or anyone else that Gentiles were lost in their ignorance and their rejection of the one true God. In the first half of Romans chapter 2, Paul starts to sort of shift his focus to the Jews. This would have no doubt spurred the Jews to defend themselves. They probably would have thought, but we're God's chosen people. We have the law and circumcision. And now in our reading in the second half of Romans 2 this morning, Paul is zeroed in on the Jews specifically. And he addresses them as though that's exactly what he has anticipated them saying. If the Jews are going to try to stand on their possession of the law and circumcision, then Paul is going to focus his argument on exactly those two things, to make plain that they're insufficient to make a person right with God. In this passage, Paul employs a rhetorical style called a diatribe, where he engages or debates with an imaginary opponent in order to make his point clear to his readers. It may initially seem like Paul is directly addressing the the Jewish component of the church in Rome, but he's actually speaking to an imaginary representative Jew, and his readers are meant to sort of be listening in on the discussion. In fact, because Paul had been a, a zealous Jew prior to meeting Christ on the Damascus Road, Paul could easily have been imagining his younger self as his opponent. In the Greek, it's clear that Paul is speaking to one person in this passage, because the you pronouns in this section are all singular. This is hard for us to appreciate in English because we use you as both singular and plural. For instance, if I say, you should buy me a piece of cake after church, I may be speaking only to Pastor Doug, or I may be speaking to all of you. Without more context, it's hard to tell which is the case. Our friends in the South have an easier time making this distinction because they've adopted the term y'all as the plural of you. So it's easy to know when they're speaking to a group of people versus one individual. If this were Atlanta, I'd be saying, y'all need to bring illusion cakes to the next potluck. In the Greek, though, it's very clear that Paul is speaking to one imaginary representative Jew. This morning, we're going to look at the two major emphases of Paul's diatribe. First, Paul argues that the law has value when practiced, not merely possessed. The law has value when practiced, not merely possessed. In verses 17 through 20, Paul lays out a series of privileges or advantages that belong to the Jews as God's people, and thus to his imaginary uh, dialogue partner. It would be unwise of us to read irony into uh, this list as though Paul were being sarcastic or mocking his hypothetical Jew for misguidedly putting confidence in these distinctions. Some commentators have suggested this very thing, but it's important for us to, er to recognize that every item in Paul's list is, in fact, a legitimate privilege the Jews enjoyed. Paul starts by saying, if you call yourself a Jew. We shouldn't take that as meaning that Paul wasn't sure if his partner, his dialogue partner, was actually Jewish. We're meant to assume that the opponent is a Jew. Some translations try to make this plain by removing the if altogether. 
The modern English version, for instance, begins verse 17 with, Indeed, you are called a Jew. And this really is the first and the foundational privilege from which all of the other privileges in this list flow. The name Jew initially signified a person from the land inhabited by the descendants of Judah. After the exile, though, the name was generally applied to all the Israelites. Being called a Jew separated one from the Gentiles and spoke of their unique status as God's covenant people, upon whom God's special favor rested. And as God's covenant people, they alone of all people on earth had been entrusted with the law, upon which Paul says his opponent relies. This is the second privilege in Paul's list, and it's the other foundational privilege mentioned here, alongside being called a Jew. Just to be clear, when Paul mentions the law, he's not referring solely to the Ten Commandments, or even to the long list of laws and commands we find in Exodus and Leviticus. Rather, the law is shorthand for the Mosaic Law, or the Law of Moses, which consists of the entirety of the first five books of the Old Testament. It was God's unique revelation of his character and his will, and it allowed the Jews to know God in a way that the Gentiles couldn't. Certainly, as Paul makes plain in Romans 1, people can know things about God because he reveals himself in a limited way in his creation. But a starry night or the Grand Canyon can't tell us what pleases or displeases God. Nature doesn't show us God's will, and it gives us only a very incomplete picture of his character. The Jews had the law, and they naturally relied on their possession of the law for a right standing with God. Between being called one of God's covenant people and being entrusted with the law of God, it's no wonder that the next privilege Paul mentions is that his opponent boasts in God. We might be tempted to read the word boasts there and think Paul is referring to a, a sinful attitude on the Jews' part. But boasting isn't necessarily sinful as long as we're boasting in the right things. I can, for instance, and have boasted about my ability to reach high things. That's easy to do when my wife is a foot shorter than me. Others might boast in their wealth, or their possessions, or their talents, or their achievements. That type of boasting is wrong because it calls glory to ourselves rather than to God. But the Bible makes clear, both in the Old and the New Testaments, that boasting in God is actually a good thing. Consider a few examples from the Old Testament. Psalm 34, 2 says, My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Psalm 44, 8 says, in God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. In Jeremiah 9.24, God says, But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So Paul's imaginary Jew here is right to boast in God. Immediately after this, Paul says his representative Jew knows God's will and approves what is excellent. How does he know God's will? And how does he know what is excellent that he might approve of it? Because he's instructed from the law. And then Paul mentions four additional privileges that belong to the Jews that sort of all glom together into one. He says, if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, who are the blind, the ones in darkness, the foolish, the children in question here? The Gentiles. Being a guide and a light and an instructor and a teacher all speak to the Jews' sense of missional responsibility to the rest of the world. 
these ideas, again, are established in the Old Testament. Listen, for instance, to Isaiah 42, 6 and 7. God says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And then Paul wraps up his list of Jewish benefits with a sort of summary by saying in the second half of verse 20 that the Jews have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Note that. Really note it. The law doesn't just contain some knowledge with some truth thrown in for good measure. It is the embodiment of knowledge and truth. A first century Jewish reader of Romans would probably have just about been at the point of fist pumping. Like everything Paul has said is true in and of itself. These were all advantages that the Jews had over every other tribe on the earth. They alone had been chosen by God to enter into a covenant with him, so they alone could boast in God. They alone had received the law. As a result, they alone knew God's will, and they alone were able to teach and guide and instruct because they alone possessed the very embodiment of wisdom and knowledge. But now the other shoe is going to drop. In verse 21, Paul says, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? I imagine Paul's imaginary Jew going, yeah, yeah, it's true, I am pretty great. Wait, what? Paul breaks down what he means with three follow-up questions. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Paul is not here implying that all Jews steal or commit adultery or rob temples. He's merely uh, picking out a few representative violations of the Ten Commandments to hopefully spur the Jews to consider their own lives and to see the ways in which they've failed to uphold the law. He says as much in verses 23 and 24 of Romans 2. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The Gentiles aren't coming to the Jews to learn about God. Rather, they're blaspheming God because of the hypocrisy of the Jews. Your Bible may have a footnote telling you that Paul is here quoting Isaiah 52.5, which reads, Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing? Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. In context, God says his name is despised in Isaiah because of the oppression of God's people by foreign powers, which may not seem like it works with the rest of what Paul is saying here in Romans 2. Yes, the Jews are being oppressed by Rome at the time Paul is writing, but that's not why he says God's name is blasphemed. Rather, Paul says that it's because the Jews fail to keep the law. But that's really the same ultimate reason for the blaspheming of God's name in Isaiah. Israel's persistent disobedience had resulted in God allowing them to be led into exile, which in turn led the, to the Gentiles blaspheming God's name. So Paul's paraphrasing of Isaiah 52.5 here is appropriate. Having the law meant nothing if the Jews were not doing what the law commands. Is this you, Christian? Do you rest secure in the knowledge that you own a Bible, or more likely, multiple Bibles? Do you read any of those Bibles regularly that you might know what God commands in it? Or is this the one day of the week that the pages of your Bible see the light of day? 
I think of the stereotype that real men don't read the instructions when they're assembling things. Be it a piece of furniture or a small appliance or a toy for their kids. As the head of a family of four, I assemble my fair share of items for use around my house. And I can't for the life of me figure out why anyone, man, woman, or child, would ignore the instructions. Just last week, I put together a pool with a filter pump for my kids to stay cool in this summer. The filter pump alone took me about an hour because the instructions for it were terrible. The one bright side of the, of the whole process is that it provided much entertainment for my sons as they watched and listened to me overreact my exasperation with the, the many shortcomings of the instruction book. But without those albeit terrible instructions, it would have taken me even longer to assemble the filter, and mistakes would have definitely been made along the way. Now please don't overthink my illustration here. I am, I am definitely not saying that the Bible is a terrible instruction book. I'm also not saying the Bible is just a book of instructions, as though God says, here, just follow these rules and we'll be good. That's legalism, and I am in no way advocating that. What I am saying, hopefully, is that God does make his will known to us in Scripture via commands and prohibitions. If the Jews had in the law the embodiment of wisdom and knowledge, consider that you possess the completed canon of Scripture. God was still writing his word when Paul wrote Romans. But now the Bible is complete. No matter how much more time passes before Jesus comes back, God will never inspire further Scripture to be written. What you have is all there is ever going to be. So are you reading it, that you might know and obey the Lord's will? Or is it gathering dust while you binge watch Netflix? Is it sitting neglected while you engage in any other hobbies or activities? What priority does the embodiment of wisdom and knowledge hold in your life? What priority does knowing the revealed will of the one true and living God take in your life? The second major emphasis of Paul's diatribe here in Romans 2 is this. Circumcision has value when it is internal, not merely external. Circumcision has value when it is internal, not merely external. Paul in verse 25 makes a, a pretty abrupt shift from talking about the law to talking about circumcision. When he says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. You might read this transition and think, where did that come from? Remember, though, that Paul is debating with an imaginary opponent here and pressing the point that the Jews are under the wrath and judgment of God, just like the Gentiles. So imagine that this imaginary representative Jew has come into this dialogue assured of his right standing with God because his people have the law and circumcision. Paul has just destroyed his opponent's confidence in the law's possession in verses 17 through 24. So the opponent says, okay, fine, but we still have the covenant sign of circumcision. This is what Paul is responding to beginning in verse 25. And it is true that circumcision was a sign of the Jew's privileged status as a member of God's chosen people, that he was a participant in the covenant that God had established with Abraham. Listen to Genesis 17, 9-14. God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. 
every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Beyond even the commanding of circumcision in Scripture, the practice of circumcision had attained an even greater importance among the Jews by Paul's time because of persecution that had come upon them in the period between the Old and the New Testament. During this time, Judea was ruled over by the Seleucid Empire, and in 174 BC, Antiochus IV Epiphanes came to power. In the course of his reign, he became set on strengthening his hold on the empire, and one of the ways he uh, decided to do this was to ban various Jewish religious rites, including circumcision, which he made a capital offense. And he tried to force the Jews to worship only Zeus, The Jews successfully rebelled in what is known as the Maccabean Revolt. It's described in the apocryphal books of 1st and 2nd Maccabees. The point, though, is that the banning of circumcision led the Jews to swing their thinking in the opposite direction and placed that much more importance and emphasis on circumcision. So by Paul's day, there was a tremendous emphasis on the practice. In fact, Jewish tradition held that Father, Father Abraham guarded the gates of Gehenna to make sure that no circumcised person ever went in. The logical conclusion then in the Jews' thinking is that since circumcision made it impossible for a Jew to go to hell, then circumcision was a golden ticket into heaven. This is the position that Paul's imaginary Jew would have been arguing from. Paul, while not dismissing the the value of circumcision altogether, asserts in verses 25 through 29 that merely removing foreskin is insufficient to save anyone from God's judgment and wrath. It was not the golden ticket to heaven that the Jews had made it out to be. Rather, Paul says circumcision has value as a rite or a symbol only if it is accompanied by obedience to the law. So, he's already established that his imaginary Jew wasn't doing that. He wasn't obeying the law. So there's no reason for the Jew to have confidence in circumcision. And how obedient to the law does the Jew need to be in order to be right with God? Flawlessly so. He would need to practice the law perfectly in order to be saved from God's wrath. But that's not to say that Old Testament saints were only saved if they obeyed perfectly. There is a distinction here between Old Testament Jews and New Testament Jews. And that distinction is Jesus Christ. When the old covenant of the Old Testament was just the covenant, and Jesus had not yet come to inaugurate the new covenant, Old Testament believers were saved in exactly the same way that we are saved today, in the sense that they exercised the obedience that comes from faith. They looked ahead in faith to the coming Messiah, just like we look back in faith to the Messiah who has already come and will one day come again. The Jews of the Old Testament were obviously unable to obey the law perfectly since they did not have the indwelling Holy Spirit to empower them. So they relied on the blood of animal sacrifices to cover their sin. 
now that Jesus has come to be the final atoning sacrifice for sin, there is no sacrifice left to be made for sin here in Romans 2. So the only alternative left for those Jews who insist on clinging to the old covenant status is to obey the law perfectly and not sin at all, ever. Consider Paul's words in Galatians 5, 2 through 4. The Galatians were in danger of yielding to the influence of some agitators who had come to them claiming that they had to be circumcised to be saved. So Paul says to them, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Just as the Galatians would be obligated to perfectly keep the whole law if they underwent circumcision, so too Paul's representative Jew, who relies on his circumcision, is now obligated to live in perfect obedience to the law, or else his circumcision becomes uncircumcision. And that's not to say his body is going to physically revert back to a pre-circumcision state. Rather, it means for salvation purposes that he's going to be no different than an uncircumcised Gentile. His covenant status as one of God's chosen people will be nullified because he's not upholding the terms of the covenant. His golden ticket to heaven is going to severely disappoint him on the last day. Paul goes on to say in our text this morning that the uncircumcised man who keeps the precepts of the law will be regarded as circumcised. This would have been shocking to Paul's imaginary Jew, or to any Jew. The Jews were very proud of their status as God's people, and they definitely had an us-versus-them mentality when it came to the unbelieving Gentiles. The lines were clearly drawn in their minds as to who was and was not saved, and they naturally drew the lines in such a way that every non-Jew was in that not-saved category. So to think that those lines were less clearly defined than they had imagined, and that an uncircumcised Gentile could possibly be included in the people of God, would be scandalous. Then Paul takes it one step further and asserts that the hated Gentile who upholds the law will stand in judgment over the Jew who has the law and circumcision, but breaks the law. So the obedient Gentile would be grouped in with the people of God and would stand in judgment over the disobedient Jew who had effectively been cast out from God's people. We should ask, who is this uncircumcised man who upholds the law? And a related question, is Paul here preaching works righteousness, that a person can be made right with God by keeping the law? The answer to the second question has to be no, because it would fly in the face of Paul's other letters, and frankly, the very gospel that Paul preaches. It's also sort of the point he's been making in this entire passage. If the Jews were incapable of perfectly obeying the law, and so could not be saved from God's judgment by their obedience, then the Gentiles likewise would be unable to do so. Because of this, scholars and commentators put forward two options for the identity of these obedient Jew, uh, Gentiles, and they seem to be pretty split on which of these options is the correct option. Either Paul is describing an imaginary, hypothetical sort of Gentile straw man to press his point about the severity of the Jews' disobedience, or Paul is describing Gentile Christians, who would be able to obey the law because they're empowered and enabled to do so by the Holy Spirit within them. I tend to lean more toward the latter option, that these are Gentile believers in Jesus Christ. 
And I lean that way because of verses 28 and 29, which sort of round out and summarize our passage this morning. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. In these last two verses, Paul is describing an actual reality. Because Jesus has sent the Holy Spirit upon his church, the hearts of believers have been circumcised by the Spirit. And because of this new heart state, believers are now able to walk in obedience to God's will as revealed in Scripture. So a Gentile would be able to obey God's law and so stand in judgment of the disobedient Jew if that Gentile has received the Holy Spirit by faith in Jesus Christ. And circumcision of the heart is not some weird new idea that Paul has just come up with. It's well attested in the Old Testament so that the Jew would have been familiar with the concept. Listen to Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Or Jeremiah 4, 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord Remove the foreskin of your heart, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. And in Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 16, God says to the Israelites, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. As we've just seen, when circumcision of the heart is referred to in the Old Testament, it's always tied to loving and obeying God. The law made clear what God expected of his people, but it provided no power for them to actually obey. Now Jesus has come to give his life for ours, to take away our sins, that we might be saved by God's grace, grace through faith in Jesus. And he has sent his Holy Spirit to circumcise our hearts, that we would love and serve God with our whole hearts, in a way that the Old Testament Jews couldn't. And this is the circumcision that matters, not the removal of foreskin, but a changed heart. It's the internal that matters, not merely the external. It is those circumcised hearts, by faith in Christ, that are the true Jews, the true members of God's chosen people. Paul says at the judgment, it will be believers in Jesus who receive praise from God. I asked earlier if you regularly read scripture that you might know God's will because it's impossible to obey when you don't know the commands. But now I ask, are you walking in obedience? Are you striving to live in such a way that your praise will come from God and not from men? We evangelicals like to throw around the phrase, faith alone. We're saved by faith alone. There's no works component to our salvation. The only thing required of us for salvation is faith in the risen Christ. But we cannot divorce faith from obedience. This is one of the major themes of James's epistle. In James 2.18, he says, But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. 
Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. A genuine, saving faith in Jesus Christ will express itself in obedience to God. Jesus says the same thing in John 14, 15, where he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And in John 14, 21, Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. We're quick to hold up Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 to defend salvation by faith alone, and rightly. But most of us, unfortunately, stop paying attention after verse 9. Listen to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 all together. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you claim to have a saving faith in Jesus Christ, you should be walking in the good works for which you were saved. You should be increasing in sanctification throughout the course of your Christian life. And that's not to say you'll be perfect. We still, we still wrestle with the world and with the flesh and with the devil. We will still sin as long as we're in this fallen world in fallen bodies. But the overall trajectory of our lives should be toward ever greater holiness. Take a look at your life. Really look at it. Examine yourself carefully. If you cannot honestly say that you are striving to walk in ever greater obedience to the revealed will of God in Scripture, then there is a real problem. Maybe, like Paul's imaginary Jew, you're relying on some external act or rite for your salvation. Maybe you think you're right with God because you prayed a prayer once, or you walked an aisle, or you signed a commitment card, or you got baptized, or you joined a church. If your heart is not circumcised by the Holy Spirit, if you are not striving for faithful obedience to God, born out of a heart of love and gratitude to God, then it would be right and good for you to question whether you are truly saved. If that is you, the other pastors and I would be happy to talk to you about the gospel and to help you come to a true saving faith in Jesus Christ. Don't be a cake that looks delicious on the outside, but is hiding something rotten on the inside. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who indwells us, God, who enables us to do your will, to walk in faithful and humble obedience to you. Father, we pray that we would grow ever more and more in sanctification and in Christ-likeness, that we would look ever more like Jesus and be a light in our world, that you would be glorified, Father, in our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. If you would, please stand now and sing with us in the presence.